Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, listeners. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. Today, we'll be talking to Fatima Policarpo about her essay, Her Borders Become Her, which appeared in issue 20 of The Common in a portfolio of writing from the Lusosphere. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Fatima Policarpo is a Portuguese-American writer. Her fiction and essays have appeared in Gulf Coast, Fourth Genre, and Ninth Letter. Her work has been supported by grants from the Luso-American Foundation and the Barbara Deming Memorial Fund, and by fellowships from the Disquiet International Literary Program, which she attended as a 2016 fellow, and the Vermont Studio Center, where she resided as a 2018 NEA fellow. She lives in Northern California with her family. Fatima Policarpo, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Emily. It's wonderful to be here and talk to you. Would you set the scene for us where you're calling from, what it's like there? Yes, I am calling from um, Northern California. I am in Sacramento uh, right now, and it's a beautiful, um, uh, rainy, sunny morning. Very nice. Uh, We've got a lot of sun here in Western Mass, but I'm, I'm glad, you know, we're moving towards spring. We're getting there. Yes, I love this time of year when everything is just on the threshold of bursting. It's one of my favorite times. Yeah, I think we deserve spring this year. <laughs> oh, we, we really, really do. <laughs> um, would you start us off with a reading from your essay, the first, the first few paragraphs? Sure. So this is from Her Borders Become Her. She had been dead nearly a decade before she sought me out. I was in my late 20s when she first came to me. Then again and again, over a period of several years, whenever I came home to visit and always in the middle of the night as I slept in my old room. Before it was mine, it was hers. In the recurring dream or vision, I opened my eyes to darkness and knew I was not alone. She stood in the far corner by the closet, waiting for something. The air between us, a conduit. Even from across the room, I felt her body tingling my skin. You don't always have to see a thing to know it exists. During this time, I couldn't look into the mirror that hung on that closet door without first thinking I might see her reflection there. It had something to do with seeing and with not wanting to see. I knew then our story was not finished and that I would tell it. Although I didn't yet understand what the story was or that telling hers would lead to my own. The truth is that I bullied her when I was 15 and she was in her late 70s and it was weighing on me. Before that, she had bullied me too when I was newly an immigrant on the cusp of teenhood. She was my uncle's, my adopted father's mother. I should have called her grandmother, the only one I ever knew, but I always called her Belle. Thank you so much for reading that. Would you describe what the piece is about just for our listeners who may not have have read your essay yet? Sure. Um, It centers on the relationship. Well, it takes course over... Uh, I would say 20 years, actually, the story. And um, it's about the evolving relationship between um, 
the speaker and uh, her grandmother figure, uh, Belle. So, um, you know, and how that relationship evolves from childhood to um, teenhood and through dislocation. Um, So, uh, yeah, in the course of the story, the speaker immigrates from Portugal to the United States as a child. And, um, and it's also about how their relationship changes through places as well, through space. So, um, and I think it's a story about hauntings and about ghosts, about the stories that follow us um, and, uh, and teach us something about ourselves. How, how did you come to write this essay? Was there something specific that inspired you to start work on it? Or is it something that you had sort of been mulling over for, for years? So I think so. I think, I think our relationship, especially um, my relationship with her when I was a teenager was really complicated. And I was, um, this story is also a lot about um, uh, violence and uh, something I'm interested in writing about is the kind of the reverberating effects of, of a violent act. Right. So not, so uh, during this time in my life, I was, um, being bullied in school. And so that, I think that conflict bled into my home life. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so, you know, looking back, I think that time in my life our in our relationship was always something I wanted to write about. Like, why, why would I, why would I behave this way to this person who had love for me? Um, you know, in a very complicated way. And so it started there. Um, of trying to untangle, our dynamics, you know, um, of unkindness. And, uh, and then it, it, it really unraveled into, um, the manuscript that I've been working on for the last five years. So this was really the beginning. So this story is very, is very special to me for that reason, because I felt, or I feel like it did, um, it pulled a, a, it pulled the, the um, secret string that kind of led me to all kinds of other interesting places. Oh, that's that's so interesting to hear about. I love that there, that there's larger and and many more things coming out of this this one piece. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, as you know, the common publishes writing with a modern sense of place. Um, would you talk a little bit about creating the spaces that we visit in this essay? Because I, you know, I feel like we're in a lot of homes. We're in the parents' home in Portugal, mm-hmm. and then these various family homes in California that have sort of different energy in them at different times. Hmm. Yeah, I think um, so. For me, this um, for me the place place in this story, and in largely in what I'm working on now, the places are just. I mean, I talk a lot about ghosts, but I feel like space works in that way as well as like it haunts you. And I don't feel um, I don't feel like I feel like we carry every place that we've lived in around with us, even once we're no longer there. And so I think when I was creating the story, I really felt like all of these places were um, as important to the narrative as the characters. So, you know, um, the adult speaker in the story, I think, it carries or embodies in herself, not only the space she's in of being a mother, right? At the end of the story, she's a mother. She's It's 20 years um, after the death of, well, I don't want to ruin anything, but after about... <laughs> leaves us and um and you know I feel like 
she's carrying around the childhood space. She's carrying around, you know, the green ranch house where she spent time with Belle. She's carrying around, you know, the house where she immigrated to as a child. And so um, when I was creating those spaces, it really felt important to um, locating where the narrator was at and her relationships with those people. Now, you you worked on some revisions to this essay with our associate editor, Elizabeth Witte, mostly, I think, to add sort of elements of context and clarity and sort of um, yes. like, like additions rather than subtractions, which is often often an editing process. Uh, and I'm sure you revised it a lot on your own even before you submitted. Would you tell us a little bit about that process, like how the final version is, is different from where you started out? Um, yes, she was, Liz was incredible. She had, she, I mean, I just felt so taken care of, um, by her and supported. Um, yeah, I had edited this piece. It had gone through quite a few revisions, including being excised from a larger essay, which now lives a fourth genre sister essay to this piece, actually. Um, and you know, it's, it's taken from a large, piece. So the pieces that are here are really um, like an integration of like several chapters, which is always, I think, challenging when you're trying to take material from a larger, um, more expansive landscape and bring it, you know, into a smaller confined space. Um, So much of what um, Liz suggested had to do with explaining the context of, for example, I think one of the pieces, um, one of the scenes in here that I wrote specifically as a result of her feedback was um, the bedroom scene where the mother is talking to the child about um, the fact that she's going to be leaving, you know, their home. Mm-hmm. And um, of course, the, of course, that is like one of the most important moments in the entire book because it, it it's the impetus for everything that comes after. But because I think in my mind, it was just such a subtext to everything, then it wasn't actually in this piece. Right. So mm-hmm. um yeah. And then other things like, you know, um, language and, uh, yeah, we did se- several revisions. Um, and I, I really do feel like our conversations, uh, helped to really bring like the heart out of this piece. Um, so I'm really, really happy with, with this and it's quite different now than what's in the manuscript. That, that's really nice to hear. I'm glad you, you, you sort of enjoyed the experience. It can be so, um, like it's so interesting how you can find the new heart of a piece just through vision because I always go into it thinking I already know what I have in the piece and what I want I in the piece. And it's never, I'm never right about that. <laughs> no. And that's like, what's so magical, you know, I think about um, having a, you know, an intuitive editor who hears you and is advocating for the message they know is there. You know, I think that is so important. I also, I love that the scene you mentioned um, where the mother um, asks the speaker, if she wants to move to America. Um, is is one of the most beautiful scenes in, in the essay, and I think it's really sort of quiet and carefully done, like not in a bit a big melodramatic, you know, bombastic way. Like it could, you know, it's a big moment in the speaker's mm-hmm. life, but it feels small in the way it's told. And I really, I really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that space um, is also like I I feel like that space, the space in that uh, scene is really alive for me as well as the writer. Um, you know, talking about space and places and um, them having a life as well. The be- the bedroom, you know, the child children's bedroom, the child's bedroom, uh, I think is also also really speaks to me. Yeah, yeah, it's very clear where where the characters are in that scene. Absolutely. 
I love that this essay is framed in the way that ghost stories often are, you know, with the, mm-hmm. the narrator telling us that she's going to tell us the story of the ghost. Um, mm-hmm. But of course, this is nonfiction, is, is, so it's not a traditional ghost story. Mm-hmm. How did you decide to frame the piece that way? Do you, do you think it changes how the reader experiences the rest of the essay, or, or do you hope it does? Um, I do hope it does, because, um, you know, as I mentioned before, I think hauntings and ghosts, which, by the way, I, I don't believe ghosts have to always be dead. <laughs> um, uh I, yes, so the speaker is being um, followed by something that she cannot see. Uh, and I think this, this story is largely about, you know, the kinds of knowledge we carry with us that isn't always visible to the eye. And so I really wanted to um, create a feeling of that feeling of being followed by a thing or a presence, or a knowing that uh, the speaker can't see, right? But that she's investigating, and she's investigating this unknown something through the stories. In this case, through the story of her relationship with Belle, and um, and you know, it's connecting. You know, it's connecting time. So there's the earlier haunting that's happening at the beginning that kind of begins the investigation, and then there's the haunting. That is that continues later on, once um, the speaker has children and uh, is just feeling compelled to to see what it is that this uh, presence is trying to speak. Right. So I think the story is largely about that. Uh, so creating a ghost or a haunting or a um, gosh, I'm thinking of the word in Portuguese, "prosigiçao," to be um, to be. Uh, followed, right, to be followed uh, in a consistent way, which I think is what the speaker is feeling at the end still um, when she's attempting to to write the story of this person in her life. That's so interesting. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, sometimes memory functions in a way that is is similar to, yeah, like a a ghost Mm -hmm. or a haunting or a presence. Yeah. Absolutely. So for me, I think the most, uh, the single most affecting thing in the essay was the moment uh, you describe, um, uh, the speaker describes looking through these very old recipe books that Belle had put together, sort of carefully cut out from magazines, mm-hmm. even though she hated cooking and she never really did it or maybe was never really well enough to do it. And, and you write, these weren't her recipes. These were her textbooks. These were her dream journals. And I just love that. And I think that we see Belle and her struggles and understand her so clearly in that moment after seeing sort of the good and the bad and the difficulties that she's had. Would you talk more about getting that moment right in the essay? Yes. Um, yes. It's the kind of moment that, you know, um, that I don't, you know, I don't think the speaker would have discovered if she hadn't started investigating, right? It's that kind of, um, again, threshold moment where, She's, you know, seeing something. Um, so yeah, I had these recipe books and I knew that they were trying to tell me something. And, you know, I, I really felt so strongly that she was trying to speak to me through something, through things, through objects, through time. And, um, and yeah, I wanted to, um, to have the object speak for her. 
because there was nothing else. And I, and I felt her presence so strongly that I thought there needs to be something. And, um, yeah, that moment was, is one of my favorite moments actually in this story. Um, was just, uh, I really wanted to communicate the act of touching the act of trying to speak through again, like just, you know, just as I, you know, kind of believe that place, uh, the place is, can haunt and carries, you know, you carry them with you. I believe objects as well. Right. So I think I was trying to communicate, like, how can these objects speak, um, speak her life, you know, in a way that she no longer can. And, um, imagining her sitting at a table every day, going through her magazines and cutting out these brilliant, beautiful, glossy, colorful, you know, pictures of a life and putting them, pasting them carefully. I mean, these were like carefully glued collages, you know, into binders and then discovering that she didn't like to cook, you know, because at first I was like, oh, she must have been a great chef. But um, no, those were for her. Those were for her to imagine, you know, so what does that mean about a person? What does that mean about her life that this is what she did? You know, these visions, these dreams that she would put down. What does that say about how she felt about her everyday self? Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I think the tricky part for me was, and I think about this a lot as I'm writing like stories that are about other people is like, how do I tell this in a way that doesn't silence her somehow, you know, because that's Mm -hmm. the point is the opposite, right? Like, how can I tell this? You know, I didn't want, you know, how can I tell this in a way that still leaves her story open to be told rather than locking her in some, you know, another box. Mm-hmm. So I think that that for me was the most, um, uh, you know, when, when I was looking through this, I actually, you know, there's a, an italicized section in this essay where I imagine what she would have written in her journal. Mm-hmm. And so that was a moment for me where I was like, where she, her voice came, came through for me, but it was also my voice. Right. So this is, mm-hmm this is me writing also like as a mother and as a, you know, and I placed myself in her. So I really feel like in that moment, like the two of us came together. So for, uh, for me, it's always, I think that's the part where I always approach a little bit more carefully. Like, how can I write, you know, I'm, I'm assuming all this, but how can I, how can I let these objects speak in a way that, that isn't confining to her story, but that opens her up to the reader. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I think you come across the recipe books or, or you're given the recipe books, and, but you're really looking for for diaries or journals or s- mm-hmm. something that will sort of explain or, or make it more clear to you. Or like you say, like kind of give her give voice to her experience, you know, mm-hmm. in, instead of having to sort of construct it yourself. But but the the dreams and aspirations that exist in the recipe book are, are, are fascinating on their own, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think language plays a really interesting role in this essay. The characters often can't completely understand each other, maybe speak different dialects of Portuguese or just learning English. And there's even a parrot who can talk, but he can't tell us what we want to (laughs) know. How do you feel language is working in this piece? Uh, I think you actually (laughs) really made a really good job of describing it. It's just, there's this, um, there's this level of untellability to language here, right? Where, you know, the characters can't fully tell each other where they're at. They can't fully 
take command of their mother tongues, right? So that's also the, you know, we have the speaker's first language, we have the bell's first language, um, and uh, English uh, is their second language, um, but they're both at different uh, levels of learning their English, right? Mm -hmm. So our speaker, when we first meet her, she's just barely, she just knows the English she's learned in her elementary school, right? So like really, really elementary things. And then you have Belle, who has been an, you know, learned Portuguese as her first language at home, but is really, you know, uh, an English speaker. And so the Portuguese she speaks is this very, you know, um, just, uh, I think I say like worn smooth, just Mm -hmm, through time and just, you know, what happens to the language of immigrants, what happens to the language once they, you know, it gets, uh, it gets integrated with English. And so she's attempting to speak to me in a language that's actually neither Portuguese or English. It's just this, um, you know, adapted tongue. And so, yes, I think, uh, I think gestures and the body play a lot into communication in this piece as a result um, you know, the way Belle shows her frustration through her, you know, the way she cleans mm-hmm. or, um, or lack thereof, right. The way the child responds by leaving her body. So she doesn't have to, you know, see what's in front of her. Mm-hmm. Um, and then yes, the parrot, I fell in love with that parrot. And when I just got, you know, when I discovered him during my, it just felt like such a perfect, you know, he, that moment, yes, he can, he's seen everything. He's been there. He was there at the beginning. He sees the speaker 20 years later. He maybe even recognizes the speaker, but he can't tell what he's seen. So, you know, I think the journey of trying to find the language to, uh, communicate the unseen to communicate what we feel but cannot see I think is definitely um the you know it's definitely one of the big journeys of this piece yeah and I just I think the parrot is doing such interesting work in the piece because we've we've seen the evolution of the speaker from from a child into a eventually a mother and the parrot just seems so unchanged by time because they live so long mm-hmm. <laughs> that it, it's sort of this like thing from the past that's still here. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, the speaker sort of wants to ask it questions. Mm-hmm. I just love that moment. But since we're speaking about language, I just wanted to ask you, I saw on Twitter, you said that you, you learned English a lot from watching Reading Rainbow with LeVar Burton. Would you tell us about that? I did. Obviously, I loved Reading Rainbow as well. I love that show so much. And just hearing the name of it makes me smile. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have so many sweet moments uh, of sitting and watching that show. And he's just so full of love. And when I um, immigrated, I was, you know, I was 11 years old and I came on my own uh, without my parents. And so um, my aunt was also, who raised me, was you know, English was also her second language. And, you know, I came with very limited English skills and I basically got thrown into an elementary school here. And, Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, they put me into a, um, Spanish speaking class. (laughs) I don't know because I, I don't know why me, because English wasn't my first language and they just assumed that would be like the place for me. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know, I mean, I didn't know Spanish. Um, 
and although it's similar, it really, it really was not helpful, but, no. um, <laughs> but the, yeah, it was a great, the class was a beautiful class. So it was probably the best place for me. But, um, so I, you know, I learned largely, um, you know, I, I learned English at school, but I have these very, very sweet moments of learning on my own of, you know, um, watching reading rainbow watching pbs i loved books i love books you know i had already this really strong foundation in reading and in in literacy in my own language and so i think i just translated that into you know my experience here you know going to the library and i loved the care bear books too the mm-hmm. old care bear books <laughs> i spent a lot of time with those i thought they were so magical but reading rainbow i think just I mean, the, the magic of having this lovely man, like, you know, this come and, and talk to me about books and, you know, the, the, um, the animations that they Mm. did that were like mixed with real life and, and, and not real life. I mean, it was just, it was really beautiful and comforting. And I have, um, just very like warm, fond memories of sitting and watching that show and, and, uh, and learning a new language and becoming, becoming my, you know, the self that I became here, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, my sister and I still talk about reading rainbow and we remember it yeah. so well. Like I remember such specific episodes and uh, what did yeah. you, what, what, um, what do you remember most about? I mean, I remember the, um, like you said, the animation, like the way mm-hmm. that they could bring, bring these work, these book worlds to life. Not, and they were definitely, you know, like LeVar Burton is an incredible reader and he was bringing them to life, but the animation really, really gave it another level. And, you know, as kids, we Absolutely. just loved that. There was yeah. a, a friend of mine uh, in in like kindergarten, his mom was an author and one of her books was on reading rainbow. And I mean, you would have thought oh, she won the lottery. Amazing. We just thought she was world famous. <laughs> oh, how wonderful. Yeah. I mean, that's the yes. dream. You were on reading rainbow. <laughs> right. I know. Uh, so when your when your piece first came through submittable, it immediately caught my eye because I think the title is so brilliant. Mm. Her her borders become her. I think there's like an interesting word play there. You know, we say something becomes someone when it's flattering to them, like that haircut is becoming on you or that haircut mm-hmm. becomes you. But it also feels like there's sort of a negative implication too, like like she's nothing but borders or she has become only borders. Mm-hmm. And the, the borders in the story are tricky. They're, they're boundaries and they're also bodies. Like mm-hmm. how, how did you settle on this title and what, what layers do you hope readers will, will take from it? Mm. Yes. I think the the play on it is right on. Um, that's, I think how I was thinking of it. Um, yeah. Her borders become her as, it being a flattering, a flattering thing, but also, um, her borders become her meaning like she becomes her borders, <laughs> um, in a way like she becomes visible and you also don't know who the, she is. Are we talking about the speaker? Are we talking about bell? And so, <laughs> yeah. um, for me, I, I, yes, I think that that spoke to me, it spoke to also the, ghostly ethereal kind of um haunting quality of the piece and uh you know the attempt to bring again to draw lines around what um what exists but what we perhaps can't always see and um 
And then, you know, you have, you have these two women trying to negotiate who they are in the world and with each other. And I think that has a lot to do with boundaries as well and borders. And so, so yeah, I think I wanted, I just wanted there to be the, the, the layering, the layering of it and the play of it and the ambiguity of it seemed to me to speak very much to all the, all that's at play in this, in this piece. So did it just sort of come to you sort of when you were thinking about like that word and the sort of like dual meetings it can have, like when something is becoming, or is it too far away to remember? (laughs) No, no. In fact, that title, um, when this essay was originally part of another essay, it had a different title. Once I began working on this on its own to submit to the common, that's when the title came to me. And so, yes, the duality of it and also the, you know, the duality, um, maybe even more than duality, you know, the layering of, of becoming a person over time, especially who has, you know, been displaced and who has um, become an immigrant and who has learned multiple languages in order to adapt and survive. I mean, this is the stories of both of the women and, you know, in this, in this story and, um, and what that does to a person's borders, you know, to, and when I say borders, I mean, and maybe, you know, there's all kinds of meanings to borders in our world today. Right. Mm -hmm. But I'm talking about, you know, I guess in my mind, I'm thinking about the border between the self and the world mm-hmm. um, and how we nego- you know, negotiate that border, how we expand it, how we, how we make it um, more porous in order to negotiate the various relationships we have, right? And in this story, I think um, the speaker, as she moves through these different phases, is definitely trying to understand uh, you know, herself in the world. And the story, you know, her relationship with Belle, I think is helping her also understand, um, her, you know, her skin. And I guess that's what I mean. Maybe when I say borders, it's like our skin between Mm -hmm. us and, you know, what lies beyond whether it's like our immediate relationships or, you know, at the state level too, because I think, I think what's happening out there in a larger, you know, um, in the larger uh, world, whether it's, you know, repressive states or dictatorial governments, which, you know, um, is where my own family comes from, um, definitely bleeds into the, and rewrites the personal. And so uh, spaces and relationships as well. That is a perfect lead on to my next question. Oh, good. Um, I was thinking about, um, you know, I've asked a lot of the guests who are in the Lusophone, uh, Lusophone, portfolio to talk to me about their idea of what the Lusosphere is, especially in terms of literature, because I feel like I haven't, um, it's, it's so broad and so diverse that that mm-hmm. I, I, I haven't been able to, you know, find one thing that's, that's unifying it or, or putting it similarly. And I know also you did when you were at the, the Disquiet um, Literary Conference in Lisbon, I think that you were probably in, in the workshop, which is called Writing the Luso Experience that Catherine Vaz leads. Is that is that right? Yes, I was. I yeah. was. So was I'm, I'm kind of curious, like in that in that context of that workshop or just in your experience as being a writer of the Lusosphere, being a Luso-American, mm-hmm. like how do you experience that literary tradition or how do you feel like other people are are writing it and how do you fit into it? Like, could you give me a, a primer on that? <laughs> yeah, I don't know that I'm, I can give you a primer, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can certainly share my own experience, sure, which sure. is unique. And I think uh, in reading, 
in reading various um, Luzo writers, I think what I would say is that their relationship to place, <laughs> here we are again, place, um, <laughs> really defines and determines how they're writing. So if you're a writer, you know, writing in Mozambique, you know, you're going to, I think, take on certain themes. If you're, if you're a writer um, writing as a, um, an ancestor, so like, you know, of Portuguese descent, but who was born and raised here, but still, right, were raised by um, uh, Luzo parents, you know, I feel like you're going to be, you know, you're going to have that experience. I, I really believe that, um, <laughs> I just believe that, uh, again, I, I, this word, but I do believe that, you know, that um, even if you aren't from the place, like your family and their experiences absolutely like will, you'll inherit that mm -hmm. somehow in your work and in your body. And I don't think we can escape that. Um so I, uh, but, you know, I heard, I heard Catherine's interview with you and she described, um, that Sodad is one of the things that she really experiences. And I really related to that when I heard her say that, I think that the longing or the search for, I mean, and even in my story, we see that, yes, we see this like searching for something that we've lost or forgotten or can't see. Like, I really, I, I feel like that somehow is, um, something that no matter where, in the lusosphere we are, we can often find whether it's a result. I mean, you know, this was like, I mean, the reason we have, the reason we have a lusosphere is because Portugal was an empire that colonized right, right. other places. Do you know what I mean? I mean, like that, the experience of war, of slavery, of, 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 of displacement, of immigration. I mean, that is like at the core of like any of those, anyone in the lusosphere world, right? Um, whether your fa if your family is not that, if you just are from the place, you're still in the place embodying all of those energies, all of that mm -hmm. history, you know, um, history, you know, I mean, uh, there's this great quote in, uh, I just, in uh, Don Miche's um, DMZ Colony, she says, history is ever arriving. And I, I really believe that. I believe that it's, it doesn't matter that we were, you know, that Portugal and you know, was colonizing people hundreds of years ago and enslaving them. Like, I feel like the remnants of that, the remnants of our, you know, um, you know, our totalitarian government that, you know, for decades ruled Portugal. Um, the, you know, just the histories of, of immigration and just, uh, I think, um, and I don't see Portugal necessarily at the center of that. I think it's just diffused everywhere now, you know, and so I think Lusosphere is such an apt, apt term for it. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think maybe what defines, uh, what defines Luso writing is this con, you know, this consistent and persistent, um, uh, investigation to like untangle all these histories that created <laughs> the Lusosphere, mm -hmm. you know, and these experiences as well. Oh, I love that. Uh, that was so wonderful. Thank you so much for that. Um, I feel like I have, yeah, a good sense of what, of what you're talking about. And it, it's also making me think, I think that this Lusosphere portfolio that we ended up publishing and, and all the many, many submissions we, we read, that a lot of them 
we're definitely doing what you're talking about. And a lot of them were, were historical. And, you know, I think mm-hmm. running, running a modern li- literary magazine, you don't get a ton of historical submissions. We get like a right. few. Um, right. but, but you're right that, the, you know, the Lusosphere submissions we got, there were a lot of historical ones of people, you know, definitely, you know, exploring their family history or, um, or yeah, political history or, or mm-hmm. a moment in time in a place where they knew their family had grown up or, or would have moved from or something like that. That's very interesting. Now, I I read that you taught writing and literature with a focus on human rights education. Is is that true? Yes. <laughs> Would you tell us more about what, like what that means, really? Uh, yes. Um, so, <clears throat> I taught. At, well, you know, in uh, in college, I uh, studied literary responses to violence. So I I was really interested in literature that was responding to like mass events of violence, mm-hmm. particularly in Africa and um, African continent. And um, I wanted to teach human rights, you know, uh, you know, like the UN Declaration of Human Rights. I wanted to teach mm-hmm. each of that through looking at a lens, you know, through looking at literature. So we studied things like, um, you know, uh, the Truth and Reconciliation um, Commission in South Africa uh, and looked at you know, different writers responding to whether it was apartheid or the, you know, TRC. And then, mm-hmm. or for example, um, we, we learned about the literature that came out of them after the Rwandan genocide, mm-hmm. there was this project called, um, a career per devoir de memoir writing by duty of memory. And it was basically, which to me seemed like the most brilliant thing as a way to kind of, to, um, to look at the events or to, to try to make something so, you know, unfathomable, kind of understandable. They created this um, group of, you know, artists that would go in and try to write a work, you know, somebody, one wrote a play, one wrote a work of nonfiction, somebody else wrote, wrote a novel about the Rwandan genocide. And so um, the classes I taught were basically looking at, um, you know, looking at human rights and what that means through the lens of literature. And then I also taught a, a, write, a course on um, prison, prison writing. So, oh, um, yeah, so I was just, I was interested in that. And I did that for some time after I graduated from college. That sounds like a, a fascinating focus. And, I, you know, I'm always interested in moments like that where people are studying literature through, through a very specific sort of, you know, political or, or modern or current events type of focus. Mm-hmm. So one last question we ask everyone, but I'm very curious because you've been talking about this larger manuscript. Can you can you tell us what you're working on now and, and what's next? Yeah, so um, now I am finishing up a, a manuscript that I've been working on for the last, I would say, five years. Um, that's nonfiction. It's, I mean, it's, it's high, I mean, it's, it's a hybrid memoir, um, like social critique history, um, very similar to what you see here, uh, in this piece, I think, except other pieces maybe incorporate more historical, uh, and historical information as well. So, um, mostly just tracing, you know, uh, my experience as an immigrant and my, my mother's experiences in, in, uh, Portugal, uh, living under a dictatorship Mm -hmm. and, um, yeah, 
that's I'm finishing that up. And then I think next I want to turn back to fiction, which is really what I was doing before I started this project. That's exciting. <laughs> yeah, so I'm really excited about that. But I feel like I really do need to get this one um, out into the world before I can turn turn back into my fiction. So yeah, of course, of course, yeah. Uh, well, that sounds great. Uh, Fatima Poligarpo, thank you so much for joining us. It's been so great to talk with you and, and I've, I've really learned a lot. Thank you. Thank you so much, Emily. This was such a, a beautiful interview. Thank you for your um, beautiful questions. Listeners, you can read Fatima's essay, Her Borders Become Her, and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.